See, I think this is what I think happened, and I don't think this is truly uh, this isn't canon, but yeah, I think they speculate it because I, I think that within that episode, the first episode, I think gives me a hint of what possibly happened, how he got out, is that the Mandalorian made the comment that crate uh, dragons eat sarlaccs. Mm-hmm. So I think what happened was is that Boba Fett was freaking stuck. He's done. He got stuck. But that crate dragon ate the sarlacc, and then somehow within that mess, there's always a bigger fish. There's always a bigger fish, and he got out. He got, oh gosh, yeah, <laughs> that's classic. <laughs> somehow out of that mess, he got out. So, well, you know, there's another story of uh, someone getting trapped in in a creature and then spat out in a redemption arc. His name's Jonah. Yeah, you know, you know what book he's in, Tanner. There's a book called Jonah, but I, is is he in it? Well, that that book is a book within a book, because you know there's always bigger fish, right? Inception, and, and that that bigger book is the Bible. And you know, Tanner, the Bible happens to be a book that we're studying. Oh my gosh, what a segue! In this, <laughs> what a segue from That's Star right. Wars. That's right. We're, from Star Wars to the Bible, there's only like three degrees of separation, people. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Cross Training, where we look at faith and practice through a biblical lens. I'm your host, Matthew Thompson. And I'm Tanner Higgins, and we don't have Mason Simmons with us again because... He's I, fired! He's fired. That's right. Yep. You're, if you're listening to this right now, Mason, here you go. There. You, you learned it at the same time everyone else did. That's what you get. That's what you get. You don't show up for work for a couple weeks, guess what? You're probably just going to get let go. Actually, I think that he's got school work to do. I was about, and, well, to be fair, I was like two seconds away from okay. saying, I'm just kidding, Mason. Please come back. We miss you. <laughs> we'll give him grace. We miss his level-headed, always correctness because he only speaks when he has hot truth to to spew on us. So yeah, he he is missed. His empty chair is just screaming at me. And Mason, come back. We should get a, one of those uh, cardboard cutouts of him or something, and just place <laughs> it right there in his in, in his absence. Uh, he'll he'll be back eventually. Until then, though, we're we're gonna keep on trucking and uh, going through the Book of John because someone's got to read through yep. this. So just to give you all a heads up, you know we're gonna finish out John, and this will be the end of our, our, our season. So we got a couple more chapters to do after seventeen. We go all the way to twenty-one, and I'm hoping some of these chapters are really in depth storyline wise, and so I'm hoping that we can get one chapter done in one episode. But we don't we don't know how this is gonna plan, plan out. So, but yet our goal, just to give you guys a heads up, is that after. John, we'll take a break, and uh, we'll get into season two in a couple weeks, maybe a month. So, which we might do like a, a final episode of just a recap. Maybe have some recap, um, talk about like what our proposed roadmap for season two is. Just mm-hmm. kind of get it out there. Okay. But that, that's a few episodes from now, so we'll we'll cross that bridge when we get yeah. to it. But today we are going over John chapter seventeen, which this is. Um, I read ahead a little bit. I did too. Uh, hey, <laughs> look at there. John seventeen kind of caps off the this couple chapter theme of Jesus just kind of. Um, is it redundant to say waxing prophetic? Because he he's going pretty hardcore on theological concepts, talking about uh, the Holy Spirit, talking about the the big picture. Really, uh, we observed several episodes ago that the scriptures were getting a le- little less like. Um, action-based, like we were more Mm -hmm. learning the biblical narrative through the actual words of Jesus, him just basically explaining himself and in plain language, as the disciples greatly appreciated a few chapters ago, uh, we were no longer um, viewing Jesus' ministry through the actions of him and his disciples. Now we're hearing it just from his mouth. And John chapter 17 uh, caps off this several chapter theme of that. We are, this this chapter, we're still in uh, Jesus' talking about the Holy Spirit, talking about what's to come and what's to happen like after he ascends. Like he's speaking as though a lot of the things that are about to happen have already happened. Yeah. Like Jesus is kind of in that eternal eternal mind um, speech kind of is what's being given. Yeah, this, this whole chapter I think is definitely meta to me. Yeah. So because, I mean, he's praying. This whole, this whole chapter is a conversation between Christ and the Father. Like there's the the disciples are in the conversation. It's a prayer. This whole chapter is a prayer that Jesus has with the Father and kind of asking and pleading with Him about certain things, certain things that will come to the future, and things for the present future. And so this whole thing, this whole chapter is just a, a, an interesting view into uh, 
Jesus and how he interacts with the Father. And, you know, the scripture is filled with prayers from Solomon, David, Abraham. But this prayer, I think, is one of the greatest prayers ever recorded in scripture because it is between uh, Christ and he's pouring out desires and needs to the Father. And this is let's just to give you kind of a, a timeline and just uh, a, a pretext before next next week is that right after this, they go into the Garden of Gethsemane, and this is right before he is arrested. And so I think, if I'm not mistaken, that he's still with the disciples, but yet he is praying just between him and the Father in the midst of the Last Supper. So I think this is kind of where, just kind of give you a little context idea of exactly where we're at, what we're doing, and where we're going. Yeah, and I've been kind of meditating over the over the scripture that we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks, and I've I've learned a lot from like the past couple chapters with uh, Jesus speaking directly about the Holy Spirit and the things that are to come and what He expects of His disciples and of anyone that chooses to follow Him, because when I think of the Bible. I feel like a lot of people could say that like the, the good stuff is in the Synoptic Gospels, if you know what I mean. Because, I mean, that, that's where Jesus is at. Mm-hmm. That's where he provides an example of how you're supposed to live. Like, I mean, because we desire to be Christ-like. So what Christ is doing in, in the Synoptic Gospels, like, yeah, that's what we're supposed to do. And the Old Testament's where all the, all the confusing, um, humongous amount of laws are and all the crazy wars. And uh, outside of Jesus' life in the New Testament, you have all these... Um, letters that mean lots of different things to lots of different churches. And then you have Revelation where things just get super confusing. A lot of people get lost in all those other areas with the exception of like a few stories that like usually you grow up learning like uh, Noah's Ark or, hey, Jonah. But Jesus' life is kind of where the the meat is for most, especially new believers. But a lot of people like stay in that. Not that there's anything wrong with that because, I mean, hey, Jesus is pretty cool. But that also, I think can desensitize one to the importance of Jesus' mm-hmm. life. Because personally, growing up, like, I, was, I mean, obviously I was taught about Jesus' life, his crucifixion. I mean, that's, that's the basis of Christianity. But these couple of chapters have taught me a lot because this isn't the stuff that we went over in Sunday school growing up. This um, pretty hardcore, like, theological talk that Jesus gave his disciples. Because, I mean, it's it's tough stuff to wrap your head around, really. Yeah. Uh, especially for the disciples that had no frame of reference for what the Holy Spirit was in the first place. So I'm finding value in the fact that this stuff got spelled out for us. Yeah. I'm, I'm very thankful for that, that, that Jesus gave that clear heads up, like, this is the purpose of the Holy Spirit. This is how the Holy Spirit's going to help you. This is why I've come down. This this is why there was uh, God the Father for you in the past. This is why there is me in the flesh right now for you here. And this is why the Holy Spirit will come after me to help you all out. And we are all the same God. And like that, that is the beauty of my love for you. Like the amount of explanation and detail that Jesus is going into is something that, I mean, you, you probably couldn't teach to a kid and like their head uh, wrap around it. So I'm very thankful for the amount of detail that Jesus goes uh, goes into in this. I think uh, I'll, I'll say this analogy and we'll get we'll get into it. Um, but I think one of the things that I think that the Synoptic Gospels and especially John for me is that going back to the basics and your ABCs is very important because I know in in the ambulance sometimes if you get a sick patient and you do a lot of the advanced stuff, you know, let's just say for case sake, you know, you go to the Pauline epistles and you look at some of the stuff that Paul's teaching there and you'll go back to, uh, you know, Leviticus and Levitical law and you kind of go bounce up some of the, you know, hardcore detailed theological, uh, you know, eschatological stuff. It's like, man, this stuff is heavy. I'm confused. I'm confused. Golly, this is just heavy stuff and I don't know what to do with it. Sometimes it's good to go back to your basics, back to your ABCs, like, okay, let's back up a little bit. Let's go back to what Jesus says. Let's go back to, you know, what Jesus is teaching because the things that he teaches is where, guess what, Paul gets his stuff. The things that Jesus is teaching, guess what, that's what God the Father and God the Son was teaching through the Levitical law and through David and through Solomon and Abraham and all the Old Testament because Jesus it permeates all the way through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. So why would we not just take it from you know, look at his life on earth and look at his teachings on earth and like, okay, let's get some peace and comfort out of this. And like, let's go back to the basics, even though some of his stuff is very heavy, but yet he kind of presented it in a way that I think is very tasteful to go back to the basics with. But there's only so much that we can uh, give you without actually getting into scripture. So what do you say we get into scripture? 
Yeah. This, stuff, this stuff is pretty deep. Like, there's a lot to, to talk about in just the first couple of verses. So I'm just going to read uh, verses 1 through 3, and then we, we can start discussing. Mm-hmm. John 17, uh, verse 1, uh, says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So I'd, I'd like to open up a little bit of discussion here, because I really like mm-hmm. uh, the first note that you had, uh, where there's that mention of um, picking out how it says, Father, it says, your son, your son, you. Like, there's this very personal language, uh, and I'll just quote your notes here. It says, these phrases note a very personal prayer, a prayer that has notes of a familiar... Goodness, a familial relationship, and kind of a note that I want to add to that was this is an example of God personifying the ideal heavenly parenting unit. I mean, this is one of many examples of which, uh, while not spelling it out for us, God is operating in a way that we as humans can understand and we can relate to. Because I can't remember when it was discussed. It might have been in Sunday school. It might not even been on the podcast. But how. It's hard to understand God because God operates on a different wavelength than we do. A lot of the time when you read stuff in Scripture, it's easy to see what, uh, what, what God's doing and not really understand, like, what, what, what drove him to do that? Because your, your brain isn't God's brain. Like, there, there are going to be plenty of times, not only when reading Scripture, but in real life, when things happen and you're just like, I don't understand what, what's God's plan here. How is God getting glory from this situation? Because, again, it's just outside of your comprehension level. So th- this is a wonderful example of God operating in a way that we can look at and go, hey, that makes sense. I understand that. I mean, that's the whole focus of the, Jesus describing himself as the son of God. Mm-hmm. Like It's one of those things that, like, it, it makes sense if you don't think about it. <laughs> like it's, it's a frame of reference where people can grab onto and be like, okay, so— God's your father. All right, I, I can I can begin to latch on here, and that that's being re- uh, revealed through the beginning of Jesus' prayer here. And, and I think um, we need to also acknowledge that this is a healthy father son relationship. The healthiest, one of the healthiest relationships. Because I mean, you can have a dad and not have a relationship with your father. I mean, there's a lot of you know hit and run f- families out there. There's even fathers within a family that don't give a crap about their sons or their daughters or their children and don't have any kind of relationship whatsoever with them. That's not a healthy relationship. And I think that what Jesus is doing here is that he's showing that, you know, this is the best relationship that we can have. And families that have broken homes that don't have a father, children that don't have fathers, or let's say that, you know, children that had abusive fathers, fathers physically or verbally, they can note here and say, you know, there's something here that Jesus has a relationship with the Father that I can have as well. And it gives hope to those that are broken uh, in a familial aspect as well, is that here we have this access to the Father as well because of Christ. And this gives us that we can now, this prayer that Jesus prays in verse 1, Father, the hours come glorify your Son, you know, this relationship with your Son, Father, you, and me. We can pray the same prayer in the sense of God the Father, you and me, your Son, or your daughter, or whatever the situation may be with that prayer. But now we can pray just as Jesus does right here in a very personal manner. And I think that's one reason that I think that John places it in here, not only within this prayer that has a bigger context, but more of a sense of like, this is what you have to hope for, is that you can talk to the great creator of the universe that is a star breather and moves planets, and basically say, Abba, Father, and have a relationship that some people, that it surpasses any other kind of relationship that you can have here on this earth. It is a, uh, a, a an agape top love, a, an agape top love that means that it is undying, unwavering, that it surpasses anything else upon this earth. So I think that's a fantastic way to open up this prayer that Jesus is praying to God the Father. I think just to take it one step further, not to dwell too much on verse 1 because, well, there's a whole lot of other verses to talk about. Uh, but when Jesus says, uh, glorify your son, that your son may also glorify you. Uh, again, going back to how this is a description of the ideal uh, family unit, unit or union. Yeah, I guess we can use uh, those unit, words interchangeable, um, er, interchangeably. I mean, obviously, I, I don't have a child, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit here and oh, gosh. talk 
to you, Tanner, about how you should treat your son as though I know better than you. <laughs> but, I mean, let, let's just let's take Jesus' advice here. Um, like Judah, it's not only his responsibility to respect you and bring honor to you by behaving. It's it it's a two way street. Like you're gonna brag on your son, and your son's gonna brag on you. It should mm-hmm. be a this two way thing. He's not your servant. Uh, he's not just there to to mow your lawn and do the couple chores that you don't feel like doing that day. He, he's not there for you to lay on the couch and be like, hey, son, go do this thing for your mom that I should probably probably be yeah. doing. He's, he's not someone to, to add friction into the family. He, it's a glorious addition to it to, to make it more whole. Uh, so there should be that, that constant transaction from the both of them. Well, it's not even really a transaction. It's just a constant giving between the two of you. You, you two should seek to outgive each other, more yeah. or less. Um, and Jesus gives that perfect example of that. So, yeah, and that's one thing when Jesus says, you know, glorify your son so that I can glorify you. And Jesus makes a statement, and it kind of automatically in my mind, I'm thinking, well, this sounds like a very selfish statement. But yet, in the sense, the way that Jesus is saying it, it's not selfish at all. And it's not rooted in pride at all. His concern for himself was actually a concern for the glory of the Father. And so the question that I kind of had was, was like, what does it mean when Jesus says, glory be given unto me so I can give glory back to you? What does it even mean to receive glory? Well, I mean, Jesus has already drawn these constant parallels. Like, if you if you love me, if you follow my commandments, then you love my Father and you follow my Father's commandments. Mm-hmm. He's been... Uh, going pretty uh, hard in long, on the concept that he and the father are one. He's been being he's been very clear about that for the past couple chapters. So this is just going back to the whole thing of like, hey, if if I can be glorified, the father will be glorified and I will glorify the father as he will glorify me. Just again drawing those uh, parallels, making it clear like we we are one. We are one and the same. If you respect me, you respect my father, and so on and so forth. Now, I want to make mention here and I this this just popped in my brain too. I th- I think is interesting is that this cup that is presented towards Christ, and it's hard for him to drink it. I think this cup, to be honest, is kind of somewhat empty at his beginning of his ministry, and as time goes on, it gets filled up a little bit more and a little bit more, and it's, it's going to be a little bit harder to drink. And here, the means of glory, like there's a path that is leading towards him receiving glory. And I want to point out that it is the cross, and the cross is an instrument of shame for the world and an instrument for God to receive his glory. So it, it, and I think this is one reason why the cross was so important. And this cup that Jesus had to bear was hard. The cross and the death that he had to endure will be difficult. But to the world standards, it seems idiotic and silly. And the reason why the cross was, I think, the best way for Jesus to die. I know that's, that sounds really bad, but probably the best way because it was to shame. And sin is to shame. And that's what Jesus did was bore the sin of humanity upon himself in shame. But yet because of that, it was also an instrument for God for him to receive the glory. I wrote down in my notes, 1 Corinthians 1, 23 through 25. And Paul, he says, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block and to the the Gentiles or the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Because, I mean, you look at the cross and you think, we, we, we talked about it last week, that it's it's the center focus, the symbol that we revolve all of our faith around. It's foolish to the world, but yet to to Christ and to God, it was where the epitome and the pinnacle of the climax of God's glory reaching its full potential. And this is what Jesus is praying unto the Father, is for that cup to be a little bit easier to bear if it's his will that your glory be completely resolved within this cross within this cup that he's going to have to drink beautiful that all that comes from just verse one i know right (laughs) uh, this chapter was just such a trip to go through um one thing that i like um in verse three where well goodness just the language that jesus uses uh when he's talking about eternal life he says this is eternal life that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Like this, this is one of the the many times that you can draw a beautiful difference between Christianity and other religions, uh, because just the again the language being used here. This isn't um, like your, I mean, insert other religion here where the God will bestow you with these certain blessings, or mm-hmm. the God is going to. Um, 
I don't even know what the language is because, well, I've been a Christian all my life, so I apologize for not having appropriate uh, comparisons here. But the language being of eternal life is just knowing mm-hmm. the Father, having a relationship, having that that intimacy that I would imagine other religions don't really offer. This this basically one-on-one friendship is what's being offered here, and the reward for it is life eternal. Like that, that's nuts. So th- again, I just I appreciate that language being used. That that um, friendly, intimate voice that, that Jesus is using here, and I, and I think it's it's the reason why I think some people find it so difficult to understand is because it's so easy. I mean, to gain eternal life, I mean, I, I feel like I have to you know jump in a circle, pat my belly, and rub my head. Well, I mean, if that's all it took, a lot of people would be going to heaven. Let's be honest. I'm just saying, yeah, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, the aspect of knowing the Father—not just like not just a passive knowingness uh, of like an acquaintance, but knowing Him. And the, the Greek word I, p- I also put in the notes here is gnosko, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but that's all right. And, and it's to understand in an experiential knowledge. And this is actually a, an idiom for, a se- for Jewish sexual relations, because, I mean, have you ever heard the, the, the term, uh, they knew each other biblically? Yeah. Okay, so, I mean, that's basically, you know, with a husband and wife, which I know you don't have a kid, but here you, you can experience in, the, in this. When you got married, that experience that you had with your wife uh, and especially if you got married in, in as a virgin and you uh, remained pure until marriage, that was specifically so relationally experiential for both of you that you knew each other a lot more openly than you know anybody else, anybody else throughout time, history, or whatever with any kind of relationship that you may have had. So this type of knowing is only experienced and enjoyed by a subjective experience that is also growing because that's what a relationship with husband and wife it's an experience together that you're growing together and that's what the relationship with god is the same way and this is why you see the the parallels between when paul preaches you know of a husband and wife is the same with you know god the father and the church and and the son is the is the groom to get the bride the church and there's a lot of parallels there yeah, that and just like how verse one talked about the the ideal relationship between like a father and a son. Mm-hmm. Now you have Jesus giving the example of this is the ideal uh, marital unit. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, operating on this wavelength where people can can understand and latch on to be like, okay, okay, I see a lesson is being taught here. I need I need to listen out on this because Jesus is using words that actually kind of make sense to me. Uh, but m- moving on, uh, verses 4 and 5, uh, read those real quick. It says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And, dude, I, that that verse 5 might be my favorite verse it's pretty in, powerful. in this chapter. It's pretty because cool. Because that, that, that hit me like a ton of bricks. Let's, let's repeat that again for, for good measure. And now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Well, that, that, that's reminiscent to John 1 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was exactly. with God, and the Word was God. Yeah, this is one of those things that escaped me as a kid. And it's something that, like, I've kind of just unconsciously at one point, like, gained an understanding of uh, as an adult. But when I started, like, studying the concept of the divine son, like, it really just kind of opened up a door in my brain. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. man, that, that's crazy. Because as a kid, I feel like it's easy, even though um, if you're raised up in church, you're going to have this sort of understanding of what the Trinity is and how there's the, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They've, they've always been around, they are around, and they always will be around. And that, that's just how it works. I mean, that's true, yes. But I think a lot of uh, kids might be done a disservice by not really studying on what that means. Because I feel like a lot of people that aren't really spiritually mature might be falsely thinking that Jesus was just a thing in the New Testament. And he ascended, and like that, that was it. But they don't think about what, what came before that and the value of that. Because a lot of people mm-hmm. might, might just not think it's worth thinking about it's that. That's kind of what we were talking about last week with modalism. Yeah, aspect. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this nice little biblical confirmation of, hey, Jesus was around before Jesus was around. <laughs> like that, I mean— I'm going to be honest, I don't really have like a, a theological bomb to drop on that, but that it is cool to have mm-hmm. those little Easter eggs throughout the Bible just confirming these uh, little theological nuggets. And it's interesting, too, because of Christ is forever existing in, from an eternity from past to present to future, just as God the Father and the Spirit, is that this plan that they had initiated, it seems like this plan's already promised 
of being completed. And it just makes me kind of dumbfuddled a little bit that why is the devil even trying? Yeah. I, I've always wondered that because, like, you know, the devil's not stupid, you know, and he, he, he thinks he's going to win. You know, he, and why does he even trying? I know he's trying to drag down everyone. He's trying to trying to drag down any, anyone he can get with him. But it's like, why even try, bro? Because like, you're already finished. Like, it's already promised before the world existed. It says here that that my glory is going to be revealed through my death and my life before the world even was formed. It was already a void. So it's like, what what the heck, bro? Like, why even try? You know, I was. I saw a painting today. Uh, I was reading an article um, about like some some art museum, and I was looking through its gallery. You don't and, seem like the artsy type. Oh, I'm. You, you'll learn while I was looking at it here in a second. Okay. And th- there was one uh, picture in specific that was it was a painting of this this individual that was like kind of reclined against just a, a couple rocks, and a single tear was going down. Uh, this individual's uh, face as they were looking up and there were a bunch of angels in the sky. And the title of it uh, was Lucifer Abandoned. And it was supposedly like a sympathetic depiction of him being ba- kicked out of heaven, wasn't in- invited to the That's rain. very metal. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I can, I can let, see why you're that. that's, that's why I caught my eye. <laughs> that I was sounds like, like shoot. A, a metal band name. <laughs> but, you know, this this artwork, for the first time in a long time, Art made it, it did its job. It made me think. I was just sitting here going, "Hmm, I wonder who depi- depicts Lucifer as like being a sympathetic character. Like, why? Why does one have sympathy for for the devil? I mean, that, that's just ridiculous to me." Which, and we're going to point out, we don't have sympathy for him. He's not my friend. I mean, duh. I'm just sure. I'm just pointing that out. De- Devil's a punk. <laughs> he's a punk. Um, I mean, he gave us some technical difficulties, but you know, overall, he's a punk. The best he can do is technical difficulties. Come yeah. on. But anyway, so it, it kind of just made me think about like what, what the function of Satan is, because you get like mixed signals all the time from sermons. Either he's the most dangerous entity that has ever lived or Satan's a punk. Like you, you don't really get any middle ground from people. It just kind of depends. And obviously, like I acknowledge that Satan does have an unfortunate amount of power. Like I do acknowledge that I'm not sitting here like actually mm-hmm. thinking he's just some schoolyard bully. He, he is more than that. Let's let's not mince words here. Um, but it made me think, like what you were uh, saying earlier, Tanner, like, he's not stupid. Doesn't he know he's going to lose? Like, what's he doing? And it, I had this breakthrough today, mm-hmm. Tanner, and it was all because of this painting. Lucifer knows God. He knows who God is. He knows what hurts God. He knows that every soul that is damned to hell is a soul that God doesn't get to have that beautiful, perfect relationship with. And knowing that God, man, I'm giving myself chills over here. Knowing that he is depriving God of having that perfect, loving relationship with every soul, he knows that yeah. that's God, and that's He's enough for deprive him. his joy from from the Father. And, I, and when I had that <laughs> that that moment of revelation, because it's not that I didn't know this really, it's just I had never really taken time to think of it. And when I thought of that, hmm. I was like. Dad, come at Satan, you absolute devil! Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I know we can laugh yeah. about it, but I mean, that's at the it, risk of retaining my cliches. It's it's freaking heartbreaking. And, and I think what you said earlier is that sometimes the way that it's he's portrayed, how the devil's portrayed in sermons, is that he he's either a punk, like haha, what a punk, or like he's the worst thing alive. I think yes and yes. I think for believers, he's just a punk because he we've we've got. A promise of eternal life through the Father, like we, he, he can't take the joy away from us of having a relationship with the Father. It's impossible. Nothing, no one, can, no power on this earth can pluck us out of His hands. Is what Paul says. But to those that don't know the Father, that gnosko feeling of understanding of growing that 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 uh, uh, experiential relationship with the Father, they should be terrified. And and I think that's one thing that we we need to be we need to acknowledge is like there's something that is determined there's someone an entity entities that are determined to take you out of this world and away from the presence and the enjoyment the fulfillment of joy with the father and that should be terrifying 
but yet it's not to, to a lot of people. And I, I think that's one thing in the church that we have lost. And that, that goes back to the aspect of what we've talked about within the gospel message is that you can't just bring out the good and candy stuff, the stuff that's sweet of eternal life, but you got to bring out like the, the judgment behind of what is to receive if you do not trust in him and you know don't lean on his everlasting arms that there will be everlasting punishment and away from the presence of God that will be tormentive in nature screw you Satan <laughs> honestly you're Just... not my you're not my friend so now he gets a little bit more focused in so he, he's he's talking about himself at the very first couple of verses he's talking about okay God I want you to receive glory I need to receive glory. Let's get this plan done did. And now he's focusing a little bit. Now he's a little bit more focused in here. And he's talking about praying for comfort for the disciples. So 6 through 8 it says, I have revealed your name to the men who gave me from the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that all things you have given to me are from you. Because the words that you gave me, I have given them. And they have received them, and they know for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you have sent me. And so he's, Jesus, he's already placed this focus on the present future of the disciples. He begins to pray for them. In verse 6, Jesus did more than just teach them about who he was and what he was sent to do, but revealed it in a way that is displayed by evidential character. And I think it's important to note that like you can talk about facts all day long about Jesus. And you can talk like within the church. Let's 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 just talk about what we talked about. I think we may mention it last week is that you can have a church that spits out facts all day long. But if they're not having that lifestyle of characteristics of Christ, if they're not living it out, then it is completely useless. You know, you I can I mean the devil knows scripture. I mean there's atheists that know scripture better than probably me. I mean, yeah, I know there is. I mean, I'm, I'm not that adverse in scripture. I try to do the best I can, but yet there's always something new that's revealed that the, the Lord reveals to me. But yet knowing it isn't going to save you, but knowing Christ will. One observation I'd like to offer on that is that little piece uh, verses six through eight caught me off guard initially because He's painting the disciples in a very good light. Like, he's basically speaking as though the disciples had been on the same page as him all along. There there was never any confusion. He showed up and was like, hey, follow me. Also, I'm going to die eventually and raise from the dead, and you're going to speak in tongues and all that good stuff. And from the way he's describing them in verses 6 through 8, you would think that, like, the reaction of the disciples like, yeah, okay, all right, I'm ready to speak in tongues. Jesus, I'm never going to mess up again. I am sin-free from here on out. I'm dropping everything. I'm perfect, blah, 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 blah. Well, we know through Scripture that, that's not the case. The disciples are always screwing up, and that's just from what we know as is recorded in Scripture. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking, why, why would Jesus speak like this? I mean, obviously Jesus isn't lying. I mean, he is, he is speaking truth to his Father. So why, why is he bragging on them so hard when honestly there's just not a lot to brag on from what we've observed? That's because Jesus, he sees hearts, not worldly accomplishments. While it's easy to look at, uh, say, for instance, uh, Peter walking on water, Jesus saw that, and he was like, Peter, he, he knows what's up. He, he's, he's out here walking on water. I'm, I'm proud of Peter. And while he did fall in, I mean, he, he had his doubts. He, he saw the water uh, being stirred up, and he needed uh, help from Jesus to get out of there. And Jesus did say, oh, oh you, why'd you doubt? Mm-hmm. But let's be honest, it, it was just him questioning him. Like, why'd you doubt? He, he wants Peter to look inside his, himself and think, why, why did I doubt I, I was walking on water, and when I had my eyes on Jesus, when I had my eyes on the prize, I was on water. So why, why did I doubt? That, that was to allow for some spiritual self-exploration. That, that was the purpose behind uh, Jesus asking those words. It wasn't just reprimanding. There's purpose in all of Jesus' words. So even though there are these apparent failures on the parts of all the disciples, that's just one example from one disciple, Jesus sees their hearts. He sees their character. He sees the fact that while they do screw up, yes, they are following him. They, they want to see this through them. They want to understand. They're constantly asking the dumbest questions to Jesus. Mm-hmm. But it's because they want to understand. There is a desire uh, to, to love Jesus. There is a, a desire to have that intimate relationship with Jesus. There is that desire to understand the words that Jesus is saying. Just because they don't get it 
all the time doesn't mean that they don't want to get it. And Jesus recognizes that. And that's enough for him to say, these disciples know what's up. They're the real deal. They're following my word. They're following your word, Lord. And I'm proud of them. And that that just... More chills. I, God loves us. I'll be honest, you know, in the way that this these couple of verses are presented to me, it's like throughout all of history, and I know we've made, and, and, and I think most people would agree that there's nothing special about these dudes. You know, yeah. they're fishermen, tax collectors, and and just terrorists. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, Simon the Zealot. I'm just, I know, but uh, you know, some of these guys were just everyday, average Joes. Okay, and I know a lot of people don't put a lot of emphasis on on the disciples, but here. The way that I read this is that, to be honest, there's no people throughout all of history that could fit the bill for these dudes. For the kingdom of God to be dispersed the way that it was, these dudes were very instrumental in the mission of God's kingdom be spread on earth. And so the way I say that is I can just see that Jesus, it goes back to verse 3, is that before the existence of the world, saw that these men were the prime candidates for an impossible mission. And I was thinking, you know, of Mission Impossible, you know, the, the, where you get that you get that package, you open up the briefcase, and it tells you this whole mission of, let's just say, God's kingdom is going to be dispersed out through all of humanity, and you're going to be the the rock of the church, Peter, and you know this is your job and your job, and, and we're going to defeat death through my death and my resurrection. Your mission, if you choose to accept it, will be to change the world by making God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Do you accept? This message will self-destruct in 10 seconds. <laughs> so it, that's what I imagined is like these 11 guys. Well, okay, we'll, 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 we'll say 12 because, I mean, Judas does have a part in this yeah, that's, yeah, that's melodramatic true. thing as well. But this, this whole group of dudes were like sought after and were designated for this mission and was offered it. And even if they turned down the offer, I still think this mission would would be completed. No, I'm not going to say I know the mission would still be completed even if like half or more than a half or all of them stood down from the mission being called because Jesus doesn't need me to, to complete his mission. He didn't need them. It was just the best, most effective way for that mission to be completed. Yeah, and to... To focus in on that, I'd like to read verses 9 and 10 because they, they're very relevant to what you're saying. Uh, Jesus continues in this prayer. He says, I am praying for them. Talk about the disciples. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. My goodness, I don't know. like How, how cool would that be to have Jesus praying specifically for you? Well, the disciples were probably around him when he was praying this. Do you think they understood what he was talking about? I don't think they were. To me, this is my personal opinion, because this is a personal prayer between Christ the Son and God the Father. And he's not praying. He's not talking to the disciples. He's talking to his daddy. Yeah. I don't think they're getting the picture. They're like, what's he talking about? Like, I'm yours and yours and mine, and they are glorified through me. What's he talking about here? So I'm, I'm sure there's one of those like confusing prayers. Yeah. It's, it's like a telephone line. You know, they're only hearing one side of the conversation. They're not getting the full picture. But I can just imagine their brains exploding after the under, after they've understood some of the, yeah. the, the context of what Jesus was saying here. Yeah, like specifically when, um, when Jesus says, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Like describe the disciples almost as like as a gift from God. I mean, he more or less describes them as being a gift from God. Like, that's just, man, mm-hmm. that's cool. Mm-hmm. Like, again, just having that, that super personal relationship. And to be fair, like, yeah, Jesus has got a, he, he's got a laid on thick for these disciples because they, they've got a lot of work ahead of them. Uh, he knows good and well that they're going to suffer the brunt of persecution in his name. Uh, so it's not that Jesus is sitting here playing favorites. He's, he knows that, that a lot of preparation needs to be done because, I mean, he, he's about to, to pass from, the, the physical realm. Uh, he's, in a sense, obviously not like period, because he has made it clear that there are um, contingencies in place, uh, that main one being the Holy Spirit, of course, but he is going to leave them alone. And he, he's made it clear it's for the best that he leaves them, but he's still going to be leaving them. And that, I mean, that's a big deal. He's going to be leaving them. That's a, that's a hard, hard ask. That is a hard ask, let's be honest. Like saying, I need you to establish to, to this new kingdom that I'm ushering in. I need you to grow it, to plant it, to preach it. 
after I'm gone. <laughs> like, yeah. that, that's a big deal. So, yeah, of course he's going to pray for them specifically. I think that's a, that goes back to like a definitely an upside-down kingdom type aspect. It's like these dudes, it doesn't make any sense of for a kingdom to grow. Like their job titles are useless. They're basically peons in the community. Uh, there's no aspect of you know royalty behind their name. What makes me think logically that these guys could spread a message that changes the world uh, for all of eternity? And verse 10 expresses that even further. That you know Jesus' mind is focused on the disciples, and he prays not for the generic sense of the world, but instead he prays for the disciples to carry his message. Verse 10, Jesus says Jesus has already talked about the shared glory between him and the Father, but now he's saying. I'm giving my shared glory that I'm going to receive to these guys, to the redeemed, those that will believe, and especially to those that are with me now that you have given me. And so it's like not only is God the Father and the Son sharing glory, but he's sharing that to their those that know him. And I think that is an amazing uh, look of what this kind of upside-down kingdom, socioeconomic, the way that it is structured is that he is willing to share that glory with us. Yeah, and he continues uh, even more talking about these disciples, and good old Judas comes up. Uh, verses 11 and 12 say, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. So mm-hmm. two two observations that I get from that. Um, for one, him saying that he wants us to be one as he and the Father are one. Mm-hmm. Like, again, describing that, hey, hey, here, here's the word, that unity that he desires for his people to have. And he, he doesn't just want us to get along. He doesn't want us to just be friends with each other. He wants a level of oneness equal to his oneness with God, which... I don't think I even have to say it, but I'm going to say it just for the sake of discussion here. It's pretty impossible to get your mind around, around how like Jesus and God are one. Like that, That's something that our little pea-sized human brains yeah. can't, can't really fathom. That's the type of oneness that he desires from us. We're, we're supposed to shatter the norms of the love that we can have between Christian brother and sister. Um, and my second observation there is him referring to this son of destruction, the which I'd imagine we're referring to Judas here. Yes. Uh, but he describes him as kind of a necessary evil. Like, what? Well, why do you think that is? Do you, do you think he's kind of is that throwing shade? Is that is that Jesus throwing shade? How how do you take that, Tanner? How do you how do you take the wording of that? Now, I wouldn't say it's a. I don't think he was a necessary evil. I would actually use a term that he was a necessary victim, because. Judas, let's just note in verse 12 that Jesus did not say, I lost none except the son of perdition or the son that is destined towards destruction. It just says that Judas was lost. Jesus didn't say he lost his grip. It just says that Judas was lost. And so this lost none except one is to fulfill the prophecy of the son of perdition. Judas is to say that verb perdition is noted as a characteristic, not as a destiny. So this Judas aspect of him being a, a necessary evil, it could have easily been Peter. Because it goes back in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 32, that the devil wanted Peter. And Jesus told Peter, he says, I fought hard to keep you. You're important. You're vital to the church, to, to, to for this kingdom of God to be spread out through all the nation. And I'm not saying that, you know, Judas had a less lesser aspect in the kingdom, but we know that within the disciples, there were those that were a little bit, had a little bit more of a hand in the, the kingdom work. I mean, John, Luke, and Like the Matthew, beloved disciple. The beloved disciple. You know, so, I mean, there, there are some that have a little bit more higher capabilities than others. Each one had a, had a role to play, but some of them a little bit had a little bit heavier roles. Does that make sense? Our human eyes, maybe. Yeah. Well, but needless to say, I th- I think that here Jesus is is saying that like it sucks that Judas is lost. It really does. I tried, and I, I think this is what Jesus is, is saying to the fathers. Like you know, it it was going to happen. I hate that it happened, but it happened. Yeah, and that's Jesus acknowledging that 
we have that free will. Mm-hmm. Because you, you say that, uh, it, it kind of almost triggers like a, a gut reflex. I mean, when, you, when you're speaking on behalf of Jesus and you say, I tried. Because, well, if Jesus tried, he'd succeed, right? I mean, Jesus, Jesus can't not su- succeed. Mm-hmm. Well, he's not going to sit here and change hearts uh, without the express written consent of that person. He, he's not into forcing people to follow him. Uh, so there is indeed that possibility of people falling away, of people being tempted by that unsympathetic Lucifer. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jesus having that moment of, it, it's a shame that Judas was lost. I, I, I did the best that I could, but his free will allowed him to do what has been done. Like he is acknowledging that. And I think this is where free will comes into play because some people would say, well, that's just a weak Jesus then. Because, I mean, if he does all things well and does things perfectly, then if he wanted to keep Judas within that, then he could have very well done so. Some people would say, well, that's just a a weak Jesus then. Well, hasn't already been established that God's weakness is stronger than our strongest strength? Mm. Uh, that's that's been pretty established. So yep. you know what, Jesus can be weak all he wants. He's still stronger than I am. That's true. So I mean, and I, and I totally agree. I think the way that he functions and the way that he has done things, it may seem like, well, it doesn't make sense to me. That's that upside down kingdom for you. And he's a he's a. I mean, it sounds weird, but he's an upside upside down God, comparative to other gods within you know the. the I think my God needs to be powerful and big, and he needs to have control of everything, and he needs to you know. That golden image up there, that's how he's he, he's my God, and that's how I'm going to perceive him to be. But yet, you know, to be honest, carpet Jesus up there, he's... That, that, ain't, that's Jesus. Not, that ain't Jesus. That ain't Jesus. You know, that, that's not Jesus up there. My Jesus is personal, and he, he he's different than what we ever perceived him to be. And I'm, I'm and carpet Jesus is an example. But needless to say is that the way that we think that God is going to respond, the way that th- we think that God's going to do things, to be honest, sometimes it's not what we expect. Who's to say that's not just Obi Wan Kenobi? Well, I mean, it is Obi Wan Kenobi. Have you not seen uh, <laughs> no, Aunt Jemima's post? Oh goodness! Whew. Okay, off the rails. <laughs> Moving on, uh, verses thirteen through nineteen. Uh, let's get down to it. it. Says, "But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the word has, and the world." has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So you got some quotable verses in here talking about... Mm -hmm. um, we being hated because we're in the world, but not of it. And that's goodness. You could preach sermon upon sermon upon sermon over that concept. And yet that's something that I feel that we as Christians get wrong all the time. That, Cause am I correct in saying that a lot of people um, interpret that as being permission for isolationism? I, I can see that. And, and I think it's mixed in with isolationism and escapism because I mean, this world is, is so corrupted and and so tattered and destroyed that I just want to be by myself, me and the Lord, and be a monk and just live in the cave. I mean, we see this within the aspect of uh, Elisha, you know, when um, Jezebel was searching to destroy him and to kill him. Guess what? He ran away into a cave in seclusion and basically said, Lord, take me out of this world. I'm, I'm, I'm done with it. You know, and the Lord is like, I'm not done with you yet. You've got work to do. And he... Within this, and, and, and this is what Jesus says in, 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 in these verses that, you know, that he's going to give joy to us that is the joy of the Father and the joy of him. And so here's, a defi- here's like a contrast between happiness and joy I think we need to look at is that a lot of times we think that Christians deserve to be happy. No, that's not the case. And I think you see it all through Scripture that there are depressed people. You look at the Psalms, you look at David. I mean, he's depressed about 90% of the time in the Psalms. You look at Elisha, he was depressed in the cave. You look at um, Jonah, who talked about... He was depressed in in a fish. In a fish. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you have to be happy all the time. Okay? And I think I've heard it recently that happiness is correlated to happenings. 
So the reason that you're happy to certain aspects is because of what's happening at that time. Joy, on the other hand, is what Jesus is speaking out here, is that you are joyful and joyous no matter what the happening is going on, no matter what is going on within that circumstance. You look at uh, Stephen. You look at Stephen. Oh, the Bible character Stephen. Yeah, okay. you look I'm at the actual Stephen. No, you. I, don't, I don't know any Stevens. But the actual Stephen that was the first martyr within Scripture. I mean, he. I, I could see him joyfully within accepting his death. And you look at many other martyrs throughout history. Is that because they were so connected? with God and they knew God is that they were joyful in that aspect because they were receiving in that glory that he has provided to those that are redeemed. And I think that's definitely a contrast is that God did not promise happiness, but he promises joy no matter what the circumstance is. And this is, I think, a evidential characteristic of a believer is that you you take a non-believer and a believer and you kill everyone in that family except them. You put, let's just say, another Job situation. They can still count it joy. And it's like, God, this sucks. I know this hurts and the pain is here. But yet, I'm still going to revel in your glory. I'm still going to base my faith in you. And, it, and it's hard to be happy in this. It's almost impossible. But you're the one that can give me joy. And I know that joy and happiness go together in our today's context, but yet I would say they're actually drastically different in the biblical, spiritual context. Yeah, and when you were uh, talking about uh, like Stephen being martyred and how he can have joy even as he's having rocks thrown at him until Mm -hmm. he passes, uh, it made me think about how, have you ever heard the phrase, there's only two uh, things that are certain in life, death and taxes. Death and taxes. And, well, we know what Jesus has to say about taxes. Render unto <laughs> Caesar's what Caesar's. So, yeah, got, got to pay taxes, fellow Christians. Sorry. Um, but how refreshing is it to know that death is not the end? And, I mean, death isn't the end for anyone. But if you have that, uh, if you have Christ's blood applied to your life, to your sins, mm-hmm. you have life eternal in paradise. You, yeah. you, you have life eternal with a perfect, unhindered relationship with Christ and like that I mean that's pretty baller having that knowledge that yeah the worst that someone can do is remove you from this earth but then you get the last laugh <laughs> like to be I'm, absent in the body is to be present with the Lord that's yeah. what Paul says and that's one of those things that it's hard to wrap your mind around because well we are living beings on earth it's really hard to think about what we haven't experienced and what isn't even of this mm-hmm. world or of this plane of existence uh, but that's why that was so central to Jesus' teachings, him constantly talking about how like life eternal is what you get when you have a relationship with me. I'm going to die, but I'm going to come back so that you can have life eternal with me. Like the whole, like for God so loved the world that he gave his own forgotten son. I just say forgotten, his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That was so central to Jesus' ministry mm-hmm. because that is, I mean, that is the absolute greatest marketing strategy one could ever have for this religion that they're trying to start up. Not that Jesus was starting up a religion, but, you know, the ushering in of the new law. Mm-hmm. Making clear, like, hey, life eternal. That's awesome. Like, you don't... People got nothing on you. The worst they can do is kill you, and you still win. Like, how cool is that? That's joy. That's the difference between joy and happiness there. And that's... I don't know. That, I don't really have a good way to cap that off. So we're, we're well, just going to no, go with that's and cool. That goes back to what we are talking about. Like, I think that in verse 15, when Jesus says, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And this, I think Jesus is praying directly against this isolationism and escapism mentality. Because when Jesus is asking that while they are in the world to sanctify them, he's not saying remove them, you know, aspect. No, if that's the case, then when we become Christians and we follow Christ and we know him, boom, we should be picked up and we're not, no more part of this world. And this is one reason, like, in some songs, I just, I, I don't like, because, like, you know, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. And it's just like, hold on a second. Jesus, uh, Jesus, God made the earth. <laughs> yeah, and so, I mean, and this is one thing, this is a whole different topic of, of eschatology, but yet the earth is going to be renewed. The earth is going to be redeemed. 
the earth groans for uh, redemption as well. But when Jesus says he's here to sanctify us, and sanctify is a verb. Let's just let's point this out. I, I looked up the word sanctify. Sanctify is a verb. Sanctify is a verb, and it means to purify, visibly consecrated towards God by holy living. This is where the joy aspect that Jesus was talking about gives that surpasses, that goes beyond the happiness that we think that we deserve, that the world gives. The world gives happiness, but yet the only God, the Father, can give joy in the aspect of this present living. And then when Jesus, when he states for our sakes, he will sanctify himself. I think this is important too. Sanctifying himself. Is this even possible? How do you sanctify yourself? And we think to ourselves like, is it, what does this even mean when Jesus said to sanctify myself? But we got to know that Jesus is both priest, the one that brings the offering to the Lord, is the altar where the sacrifice is being made and the sacrifice itself, the lamb that's being drawn to the slaughter willingly. Jesus is the only one qualified to sanctify himself, the only one in, this, in, in, in all of human history to sanctify himself. Henceforth, the only one to speak on our behalf to the Father and to sanctify us is Jesus, is the, is the mediator, is the only one is, 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 is able to talk with the Father to make petition for our behalf. And I think that's fantastic that Jesus is already talking about the mediation that he's going to have with the Father here in this prayer. So here, after this, Jesus now shifts gears away from the disciples. And I think this one, it, this this prayer right here, and this, this part of the prayer means a lot to me. And this is probably one of my favorite portions of Scripture. Starting in verse, uh, I'm going to read verses 20 uh, through 23. It says, I pray not only for these, not for only these disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their message. Okay, now it's getting to me. He's praying to the disciples. He's prayed to the Father with the relationship between them. Now he's praying for me. I think that's awesome. May they all be one, and as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be one in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. And this goes back to, to what he, he, he's repeating what himself earlier from a different passage in this chapter. He's saying, you know, the, the unity aspect of this. Verse 22, I have given them the glory you have given me. May they be one as we are one. I am in them and you in me. May they be made completely one so that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Now, Jesus prayed for them and he prayed for us. Now, he knew that he would prevail over this, this cup that was about to be presented to him. In this, in this verse, he shows that not only is he the big picture guy, but also a personal one as well. And I think that's fantastic is that he's also focusing on a unity aspect of this. Like he makes mention twice in this chapter of like, I want these guys, I want the disciples, I want those that will believe because of what they've said to be unified in this message just as we are unified in the Trinity. I want unity. And it's almost like Jesus was predicting that there was going to be disunity in the church. Shocker. Nah, Shocker. Never, never. I mean, how many denominations? I mean, but I mean, it's like Jesus almost knew that there was going to be turmoil and, and disagreements. It's like, let them be unified together and let that be evidence of my glory. So not only the unity aspect is, is spectacular, but Jesus envisioned also a great multitude before the throne of God. And I think when Jesus was praying this, he had everyone in mind. And, I, and there's and there's a song that comes into my mind is that, I can't remember the, the lyrics, but there's one spot that says, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. And I think that's what he's doing here is that when he's praying to the Father, that I think that everyone through all of humanity that believed in him and that will believe was on his mind. And I think that in Revelation chapter 7, it says this, after this, I looked and there was a great multitude. And I think this multitude is what Jesus was praying for, those that will believe in this message. There was a great multitude from every nation, tribe, people and language, which no one could number. It was an innumerable standing before the throne and before the lamb. 
They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And I think this is a picture that God gives John in Revelation as the prayer is being prayed here in John chapter 17 of Christ and God the Father. He's saying, this picture I see is, is to come. So I pray that there, this number, this multitude, be given for your glory in this praise that they cried out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to God and is seated at the throne and to the Lamb. And I think this is what Jesus is praying here for them. Yeah, and he drives it home uh, in the rest of this chapter, reading through verses uh, 24 and finishing through verse 26. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. Going back to that divine son uh, acknowledgement there. Uh, Verse 25 says, O righteous father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So Jesus throughout this entire uh, chapter has been really just talking about like what does he want he wants this relationship and he's talking about the method through which he wants to achieve that acknowledging that he's going to have to drink this heavy cup as we've already established uh, to to die on that cross to to experience all this terrible sin of the world take all of that on and and die like he's coming to earth in this uh, fleshly vessel with the goal to just Figure out what this whole death thing is all about so he can give us a fighting chance to have that perfect, again, unhindered relationship with him. So as he's talking about all this throughout the throughout the chapter, he caps it off by just driving it home with selfless love, making it clear that this is because we desire this relationship. I'm not I don't I don't have to do anyone any favors like this. This isn't something that's benefiting me. I'm having to die. <laughs> like, but he, he wants that relationship with us so badly that this is what he's willing to go through. He's, he has that truly perfect selfless love. In the beginning of this chapter, he exemplified the perfect um, parenting unit, that, that father-son relationship in verse 1. And then I believe in verse 3, he also identifies with that perfect marriage setup. That husband and wife, that um, that knowing someone intimately, we we discussed that at the beginning of this episode. He's gone through this entire chapter, just basically personifying just the perfect relationship, talking about everything that it's taken to get to this point, and how it's all going to pay off with everyone having the opportunity to love him. And he acknowledges the fact that free will is going to get in the way when when he talks about the um, the Jesus, son of perdition, yeah. the the son of destruction. That's the the terminology used. Acknowledging that that free will is going to cause some people to go by the wayside, and that and that is something that he doesn't desire, but he's not going to get in the way of it, because that would jeopardize our ability to have a true, authentic, loving relationship mm-hmm. with him. And all of that, it, it's worth the risk to him. And I think this goes back to like. God doesn't need us whatsoever, you know, but he desires that relationship with us and he desires that worship as well. And to have true worship with God and to truly worship him the way that is designed is to be in the truth with him and to be in the complete knowing. And God's not cheap, man. His grace isn't cheap. And so when we worship him and we actually present a sacrifice to him or we go to him in loving uh, unity with him, we don't need to present it in a way that's cheap. And when I say that, I'm talking about like, let's say with with sacrifices and with, I think, in Hezekiah. uh, In Hezekiah, God got ticked off at the, the, the priest because they were bringing up like their secondhand sacrifices, like, lambs that had broken legs and, you know, dirty old lambs, lambs that weren't pure and things that weren't designed to be sacrificed to the Lord. And God was like, this is an abomination. Like, what are you doing? And when we go to God, we need to bring everything, our best. If we want to worship him, we need to bring what we have and pour out our hearts to him. And this relationship between you know, a father and a son, we can have that if we pour out the, tr- if we, if we acknowledge that he is truth and we reveal ourselves like a bride does to a groom on the wedding night and reveal everything that we have to him and be like, I want to know you 
and, and for you to know me and not to reveal anything. It has to be pure. It has to be purified, sanctified in truth and in love. And then I think only then can we truly worship God the way that he has intended and instructed and created for worship to be done. Yeah, and I mean, that's the message there. I mean, really, I don't, I mean, there's nothing you really can add to that. That That's the perfect mission statement. That's the perfect way to, to say it. It's almost like this Jesus dude is perfect. Uh, really, the only way that I can think to cap off this chapter is just to repeat Jesus' words. Because yeah. he says it so well uh, when he says in verse 26, I will continue to make it known, making it clear that he's not done. That this, yeah. this mission and is this ongoing. is right before he's being arrested, too. So it's just like, I still got stuff to say. Yeah, oh, wait, he's, That's powerful. It ain't over till he says it's over. Yeah. Uh, and continuing, he says, uh, that the love with which you have loved me, that perfect love, may be in them. Like, that's what he desires, is for a perfect love to be something that we can achieve through all of our sin, through all of our uh, our struggles, and the way that we mistreat Christ on a daily basis. He still wants us to have that perfect love. Mm-hmm. That's, that's something that we're going to see come to a head in this next chapter, where the ball's going to start rolling. And it, it's it's a tough ball. It, yeah. it, is, it is that cup that... He, We'll get to it when we read it. I mean, won't, won't spoil nowhere in Scripture does it say, Thou shalt not laugh, but I mean, the next couple of chapters, to be honest, are quite sombering in, in that aspect. I think Christians need to laugh. I think, it's, I think we need to have fun and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, but this, the, the next couple of chapters get a little bit more dicey and a little bit more uh, humbling, for sure. Yeah, which it's been a bit of an emotional roller coaster for the last several chapters. It's been kind of balanced between kind of happy go lucky. I mean, we had our our fun with sassy Jesus in the first yeah, half of carpet John, Jesus, and and now we're getting into to the heavier stuff. But I mean that, I mean that's God right there. He covers all emotions. He covers all bases. He he doesn't allow any part of your imagination or mind to not be addressed because I mean God is that all encompassing figure that that we love so much. But we'll we'll tackle that next week. Um, as for this week, I mean that that's. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the rest of the, uh, chapter seventeen. So, so if you want to check us on the social media, check out our uh, Instagram, Facebook. We have conversations all the time, and uh, if you want to email us for anything, and uh, I'm thinking about doing a T-shirt design of Carpet Jesus. I mean, <laughs> is that our new thing? I don't know, <laughs> but uh, we're gonna mix it up a little bit. But uh, Matthew, give us two words. What? What? I'm not ready. <laughs> but peace, peace out.